Welcome back to Remember What's Next, Season 2, with author, rabbi, Israeli tour guide, and historian Ken Spiro, and myself, JFI director and educator Ellie Bass. This is a show where we look to the past in order to understand the present and plan for a better future. And this season, we're touring Israel and learning about each place and its part in our history and our lives as a Jewish people today. Okay, let's do this. Uh, okay, so let's begin. Today we thought um, we would talk about, uh, see what we could get to. We would start with, well, maybe let's decide which which we should start with. We were thinking about Akko, Caesarea, yeah, think, and Haifa. I figured we, we did Tel Aviv and Jaffa, so we should work our way out the coast. So going north, I mean, there's not that much to talk about in Ranana. Bless you, Ranana and you know Farsaba and those places. Those are new Zion, new communities. But I figured the first really interesting place we hit is uh, is Caesarea. Okay, so I, another about, weirdly named place in Israel. So I'm yeah, I'm very yeah, curious. Like, named after a different Caesar. Right. So yeah, yeah. Okay, so let's let's dig in. Let's talk a little bit about the ancient history of the place. Let's talk about you know how it transforms through the different eras, and then what is it now? And you know, it, like I know people who moved to Israel and they moved near Caesarea. Caesarea so yeah. what's there? What what what's the draw now? What does it look like? And, and what is it? Well, now, now? Well, this ancient Caesarea Maritina, which is the the Roman period city of Herod the Great that we'll talk about in detail because it's such a fantastically interesting place. Um, and then there's the modern city of Caesarea, which is just like right next to it. They sort of come together, sure. which is really a town, not a city. It's, it's a, and it's a very posh place to live. It's got some of the nicest high-end real estate in Israel today is, is in Caesarea. Hmm. People like Bibi Netanyahu have houses there. Um, but you get a nice private house Overlooking, usually set back a little, not so much house on the beach, but not too far in. You can see the water from there. And uh, it's really, really upscale uh, community that has a nice Anglo population in it. It also has Israel's, I don't know if it's the only, but I think it could be the only golf course in Israel. Wow. Israel's not big for, for ice hockey and for golf courses, two things that are very limited. Um, yeah, so it's it's a very posh, upscale a uh, place to live nowadays uh, near near uh, a big power station <laughs> it's the landmark you see on the coast is, is one of israel's biggest power stations big oh, smoke that's wild. interesting by caesarea huh. but otherwise uh, yeah there's not that much going on today except the nice you know seaside community but ancient caesarea is uh, is very interesting you know like the reason why all these places were built between we mentioned this before between like tel aviv and even going south and then all the way north up to Mount Carmel and Haifa that we'll hopefully get a little bit today at least to, is um, basically from the 13th century onwards, which corresponds to the final Muslim reconquest of the land of Israel. I mean, the Crusaders, we'll talk about that more, but the Crusaders had taken 1099 and then came back and taken territory again. Uh, but with the Mamelukes, Baybars, uh, the Mamelukes will... Uh, recapture and destroy all the last crusader outposts in the land of israel mm. um, some of them on the coasts such as in caesarea in in uh, 
and uh, in Haifa and all the, and, and Akko, Acre, these places will all be taken finally once and for all. And the Muslims got so fed up with various attempts of, of Christian crusaders to conquer the land of Israel, they will pretty much destroy all of the fortifications and all of the inhabited area along the coast of Israel, not wanting the crusaders to be able to come back and establish a foothold in and in a fortified city of some sort, if they could get a hold of them, they'll start bringing more of them in. So they leveled pretty much everything and left it. So all these places were either completely abandoned or little sleepy villages um, until modern times, which turned out really good for Zionism because starting in the early 20th century, especially with Jewish National Fund in particular, basically spent most of their efforts purchasing land from like absentee Arab landowners at very, you know, often gross, grossly inflated prices, but this will enable all these communities to be established going up the coast of Israel. And you got, you got, you got Tel Aviv and Petah Tikva and you got, you got Netanya and, you've, and you have Ranana and all these places and, and, and then modern areas, including the modern area of Caesarea, which is land, this is land bought by the Rothschilds. So all of that land was purchased like by title? Yeah, yeah, it was bought. It was bought during the Ottoman Turkish period from landowners, most of whom were absentee landowners, who had possessed the land. It's an interesting little aside that the hmm. official document of ownership of land, the state of Israel owns most of the land in Israel, um, but the title is always definitively decided by the Ottoman Turkish Land Survey, called the Tabu which was a land survey done during the Ottoman Empire. Remember, from that's from 1517 until 1917. Right. Is Ottoman control of the land of Israel, a huge period of time. Uh, and they had a, an official like registration document called Tabu, which anyone who had bought land who could prove ownership of land. I don't know how they proved the original ownership of the land. Maybe it's when Ottomans came there, they... Uh, it's a good, a good question for a lawyer who deals in real estate in Israel. Hmm. But that document is used until today as the definitive document of ownership during the Ottoman period until today. And you can still register your house in Tabu, it's called. If you have a piece of land that you built on, state-owned land, for instance, or, or landless, not owned land, you can have it registered. So, uh, yeah. So That's this is so doing interesting. Government. It's such an interesting thing to think about in terms of you know, the land disputes in that, um, in those areas where it's some, you know, this idea of occupation, but when you think that there's titles that actually say people bought this land, it was paid for, yeah. it was legal, it was, you know, it, it's an interesting um, thing to even think about that, that these large cities in these large towns, somebody paid for that land and, and acquired it in a legal manner. Um, yeah, yeah, that's very interesting. I don't think that gets talked about enough. It, it doesn't. It doesn't. The vast—that's not really our topic of today. But we do a whole talk on it. But the the vast majority of land, like the settlements, are on are on state-owned, ownerless land. If and Arabs often challenge that in the Palestinian Authority, but they have to produce evidence, usually using the tabu. I know of like a whole street in you know in the in a, in a settlement where they're leveling some of the houses now precisely because at the corner of one of the houses was shown to be on Arab land and now they're going to destroy a whole row of you know recently Jewish built houses because of that. So it's not lawlessness and whoever grabs it and if and if Jews grab property in what an illegal outpost that is built on land that Arabs can show legal title to, uh, then the army will go in and destroy it. 
You know, we have all kinds of land ownership issues in this country today. The whole Negev is being grabbed by Bedouin who claim their family have been living there for thousands of years, but they actually don't have title to these lands. But that's getting way off topic. Maybe we'll have to do that at a different time. I definitely think we have to do that. Yeah, yeah. The land ownership in Israel is a fascinating thing to think about. Exactly. So I would love to dig into that. Okay, cool. All right, back to Caesarea. Right, right. So again, Israel, just a little, a little big pick, a little big history and geography, you know, Israel sitting on the Eastern Mediterranean. So before the, before it was denuded of its inhabitants and its settlement by in the 13th century by the Mamelukes, this is obviously really, some of this land is really valuable precisely because as I mentioned previously with Jaffa, A, it's access to the water. You know, living in the hill country, you got to have you know, trade routes, products that need to be exported, either grown in Israel or transported through Israel. Um, ports along the coast of Israel, we talked about Jaffa being a shallow water port, which is a problem. You have big ships can't come right up to the port, which makes loading and unloading them, whether it's a modern period of time or ancient history, very, very problematic. And also trade routes, being on the coast, you know, I mentioned, we mentioned the last talk we had, the, the Via Maris, this, this trade route that runs up the coast of Israel, which is connecting basically ancient Egypt with, you know, the Mesopotamia, whether it's cutting through across Israel to Damascus or going up uh, the coast and coming to what is Turkey of today. So it's a very strategically important place. And uh, as Israel develops historically, you know, we go back to uh, pre-Israelite occupation of the land of Israel that begins with Joshua. There's different people settling along the coast of Israel. There's Canaanites in different places, including in like North and Haifa is originally a Canaanite settlement. Um, there's these people that I think we mentioned previously, the Phoenicians, who are seafaring people, not to be confused with the Philistines or the Goldsteins, but the Phoenicians, who are not sure of their origins, maybe that relate to the Canaanites, but they're very much in, they're very into settling areas of, of coastal areas, and primarily what is Lebanon today, Tyre and Sidon. And the original uh, area where Caesarea was built on was originally a Phoenician settlement. It's called like Straton's Tower, Straton, Straton, which I think is the, the Greek. Uh, Greek version of the Phoenician king of Sidon's name, which I think was like Sharsham or something like that. Hmm. So initially going back to the first inhabitation, pre-Jewish inhabitation of the area was, was some Phoenician area of, uh, of settlement. And uh, we see that the Greeks, during the Greek period of time, um, that the Hasmoneans will occupy that area. Hmm. So it's gonna, there's going to be some low like some small inhabitation of the area. The problem is it's not really a natural port. So there's limits to what you can do there. But it really takes off uh, during the time of Herod the Great. And he, Herod is such an interesting person. Um, you know, we know there's a lot of Herods, by the way. It's a family name. Like people know Herod Antipas, who's his son, who is the, the, the Herod of the Jesus the Jesus uh, narrative, who's not the king of Israel, but the ethnarch of the Galilee, which is a lower level Roman appointed position after Herod the Great's time. But Herod the Great himself, who is of Edomite and, and Nabataean ancestry, who is put in power, he's not legitimate king of Israel, he's put in power uh, by Augustus Caesar, who was the first real Roman Caesar. Hmm. We're talking about in the last few decades, he rules from 37 to 4 BCE, but the last, the Romans come to Israel in 63 BCE, 
that's when Pompey Magnus, who was the Roman general, who was kind of vying for power with Julius Caesar. And we know who wins that one. Caesar doesn't, Caesar doesn't last too long, but this isn't the class in Roman history. But Pompey arrives to mediate a dispute between the last two surviving Maccabean great-great-grandchildren. And the Romans wow. came, the Romans come to mediate, and the Romans don't mediate, the Romans just conquer and they stay. Right. And it becomes right. Roman territory, and all these different people end up killing each other out, all these Roman generals. Pompey and Caesar and Brutus and Crassus and Mark Anthony and everyone. The last guy standing is Mark Anthony. I mean, the last guy standing is, excuse me, Octavian, who becomes Augustus. He will make Herod uh, his client king, because that's how the Romans like to rule. Hmm. They, they prefer to have local rulers deal with the local day-to-day -day stuff. And as long as you paid your taxes and recognized Roman authority, the Romans more or less left you alone. So Herod is a fascinating guy. He is a person who is, I always, I've been saying this for decades. He's a, he's a cross between Joseph Stalin and Donald Trump. <laughs> so Stalin sideways, he's very paranoid. <laughs> yeah, he was very paranoid. And anyone who's threatened by he killed, including his own family members, one of his wives, some of his kids. Um, a lot of rabbis uh, and the, wow. the Donald Trump side was he loved to build and he loved, he loved luxury and he loved to glitz. Right. You know, right. I was joking. The, gold, the that gold if, toilet. <laughs> if Trump had built, if Trump had built, rebuilt the second temple, not Herod, it would, it would have these big gold letters, TT, the Trump temple and a casino, <laughs> like down below before That's you great. entered. That's yeah. totally true. 100%. <laughs> right. So, so Herod embarked, but Herod loved to build. He, he built, people build for, for his ego. He wanted to really convert. He wanted to make Israel, which is the eastern border of the Roman Empire in the Mediterranean. By that point, the whole Mediterranean is a Roman sea. It's pretty cool. The Romans controlled everything from Carthage, you know, from Morocco, Carthage, which is in you know, Tunisia of today, mm -hmm. all the way through to Turkey, all the way through the northern, you know, everything that's Greece and Italy and France and Spain. <laughs> it was all Roman Ocean. It's unbelievable wow. what empire they had. And the biggest ports in the Roman Empire, this is, by the way, tremendous amount of stability. Uh, when Rome finally controls the Mediterranean, you know, the lawlessness and pirates who used to roam it are, are, are under control. And you could do a lot better than living under the Roman Empire at the height of its power. They brought with them their roads and their aqueducts and their government and their law and their order. I mean, if right. you messed with them, it was bad news. But this is when Herod is king, and he has a very good relationship with the emperor. Mm. So he wants to take advantage of that by building uh, a major port city in Israel. And if you look, you know, we talked about Jaffa as a, as a shallow water port. Uh, Haifa does have a bay, and there is actually a port, but it's kind of far north. A little bit out of the way, so a little further south, and uh, and to make a really cool Roman-style port city. Uh, the other problem is Haifa is like it's like a it's a mountain that comes out into the water. But if you look at at the where Caesarea is built, it's right on the coast. And what Herod does is um, he takes the city that had been previously um, taken by Alexander Yanai, the Maccabean, one of the Maccabean conquerors in this this long chain of Maccabean rulers, as he expands mm -hmm. the kingdom, it becomes Jewish territory again. Um, the Romans, when they come, they dramatically decrease the size of Judea, making it largely landlocked. But mm -hmm. when Herod becomes the client king, uh, he is granted the city of Caesarea by the Romans, and he will convert it into an amazing city between like the year 22 before the Common Era until about the year 10 before the Common Era. He will spend about 12 years. This is the height of his building period when he builds a lot of stuff. Uh, and he builds, he rebuilds Jerusalem, he rebuilds the temple. And 
Masada and, and, and Herodium. He, he went crazy, this guy. And like Her- and Herod loved luxury and he loved security. Hmm. So he those combined to make some very impressive palaces and some very beautiful cities. And he was very practical. And so he decides Israel needs a real proper port. If we're going to be a major commercial and cultural right. center in the Eastern Roman Empire, we need to invest in our infrastructure. And this is before the Chinese came and were building, you know, the belts and the roads like they rebuilt the port. The Chinese just are rebuilding a port in Ashdod for Israel. Um, wow. But back then, Herod embarks on it himself. And he, what he does, and the problem is, is he needs he needs a uh, a port feature. If you don't have a if you don't have a protected port, uh, a that you're gonna have you're gonna deal with currents and and all kinds of storms and things. And if you want to have major ships being able to dock, right, you have to build a port. So he embarks. So on wait, what does that mean when a, when you say a port feature? Do you mean like a bay? Like it has to. Have yeah, you need a bay, and there's no bay, and there's no bay there. Got it. And you also need depth. Right. Just to take a little boat up to the coastline is one thing, but a a ship with a keel that's deep in the water with a lot of goods on it, you can't do it. So he will, the Romans were genius engineering and Herod brings some of the most really interesting engineering, the the cutting edge building techniques that the Romans were using, Herod kind of gets first. He's using them as quickly. It's kind of like Israel getting the F-35s and all the latest American military technology. As soon as the American Air Force gets it, Israel's getting it next. So Herod's getting it next. And Herod, you know, taxed the Jewish people very significantly. Plus he had, he controlled major trade routes, which is a source of income. Plus he had a lot of cash crops. You know, you had wheat and you had dates and you had olives and you had, you know, all this stuff is super valuable mm. uh, exports in agrarian society of the ancient world. And Rome needed a lot of stuff. Right. I think we mentioned that, the, you know, the major Egypt was the major source of wheat for uh, for the Roman Empire, exporting it across the Mediterranean to Italy. Mm. So a port was like super important. So what Herod, the Romans figured out that, first of all, volcanic lava placed in wooden frames underwater hardens into like cement blocks, which is kind of counterintuitive. So using that and like just giant stones, he just, it's like, I remember reading this book about the building of the Brooklyn Bridge, how hard it was to put these pylons underwater. This is thousands of years ago. He makes this gigantic jetty, this, you know, key going out into the water that uh, that is like 400 Josephus, the great first century Jewish historian who has a photographic eye. He gives us beautiful descriptions of Jerusalem, but he gives us tremendous descriptions of the effort that Herod puts into building the port itself, which goes like 400 meters out into the water. It wasn't just like a dock. It had a colonnade on it and piers and everything. And then he builds, and and of course he has the entrance to the port in the north, northern side to protect it from the currents coming from the south. Huge port when he fit and he builds this towers on either side, this huge lighthouse, which is mimicking the lighthouse in Alexandria in Egypt, this beautiful lighthouse, which had like a fire at the top, like a lighthouse of today. So you could see it in the dark. Wow. And when he finishes building this port, it's as big as Ostia, which is the main port outside Rome, or Piraeus, the main port outside Athens. So now Herod has built a port that rivals the biggest ports in the Roman Empire at the height of Roman power. It's an amazing commercial feat. Wow. Which, which brings a huge amount of goods into Israel. Now trade has become a huge thing. And this is the gateway to the Eastern Roman Empire and to things further east, to, you know, places like Damascus. You and can now it, bring it to- is that port still visible today? Is it still there? Very little of it is left. Hmm. And, and the other thing he does is, of course, he doesn't just build ports. Herod likes cities. And uh, so he builds a walled city. Obviously, there's not the part facing the ocean is not the Mediterranean is not wall, but the, the rest of it is walled. And he and he makes it a, a real Roman city. 
when Herod rebuilds Jerusalem and expands it, primarily he knows that it's basically going to be a Jewish city. He, he puts Roman, Greek Roman features in the city, although to a much less extent, because the major mm-hmm. focus of Jerusalem is going to be the temple. It's the political and most importantly, spiritual capital. Right. He does build a beautiful palace, you know, that we talked about at Jaffa Gate, the, what's today David Citadel, which has nothing to do with King David, is the is the northern end of his 300 meter long giant palace because everywhere Herod built, he wanted the luxury and he wanted the security. So he's always going to build it in the most strategic, safest place. Hmm. That's the top of the old city. Masada, he builds it on the cliffs, hanging out over it. In, in Caesarea, he will build another palace. He had a lot of palaces. I don't know how much time he spent in all of these places, but he had a lot of them. Right. Um, he builds a palace going out into the water, which is really cool. First of all, very secure, which wow. means on three sides, it's water. Uh, with a 180 degree view, like Masada, north, the northern part of Masada is just facing up the Jordan Valley. 180 degree view, uh, tremendous privacy, tremendous security. There's no one can get to it except from one that's from the inside of Masada itself. Uh, natural air conditioning, beautiful place. Its own private bathhouse. Wow. Multiple tiered palace. You go look at Masada, recreations of Masada. In Caesarea, he builds this out into the Mediterranean with a swimming pool out in the Mediterranean. <laughs> At the, or at the tip, at the at the western tip of his palace complex. So very secure, very luxurious, very right. beautiful. And it gives him what he wants, luxury. You know, he can show it off to all of his Roman, his high-class guests, and a lot mm-hmm. of security. But he also puts in the city all kinds of really interesting features, like in a Roman city. First of all, the city was named after Augustus. Um, and it's he called it Sebastos, which is the Greek word. Greek, member was the lingua franca, the international language of the upper class of the Mediterranean is not Latin, it's gonna be Greek. And in the Middle East, it was Greek and Aramaic were the spoken language at this period of time. Hmm. So um, he builds a, he names the city uh, Caesarea Maritina after Augustus Caesar Maritina, you know, on the sea. Um, but he, it's called Sebastos, which is the Greek version of Augustus, which means grand or great. He built a huge temple to Augustus. You can still see the foundations of in the city. This is the same size as the temple in Jerusalem. The platform was much smaller, but the actual building was huge, like Greek Roman temple with a statue of Augustus in it. Just shows you how complex Herod is. You know, right. in the Roman city, he's got a because Roman emperors were worshipped in their and as when they were alive as gods. Right. You got to build it. It's a great way. And of course, he's my patron. I got to flatter the guy. He builds a beautiful theater. Uh, uh, you know, a theater, uh, which is a half circle theater, which you can still see today, which is largely reconstructed. That's sat between four and 5,000 people. And that, where um, is that exactly? It's the South. It's, it was actually built outside the wall of the city. Wow. Um, but you can still see it today. And they, and they do concerts in it. It's missing the scanifons, the big backdrop that Roman theaters had a backdrop that was acoustically to direct the sound in. Hmm. Um, but it's a gorgeous theater, one of the most beautiful ones built in Israel. Nothing, you know, much smaller than a lot of other theaters that you see in the Roman world, but not but four or 5,000 people in a theater is unbelievable. He also built, um, he had a huge bathhouse. You can know, you, and that's a classic feature. This was the, the Romans took a lot of features from the Greeks and incorporated into their cultural, their city planning and their culture. Um, so this massive bathhouse. And he, one of the most impressive things he built in the city is a giant hippodrome which is for horse racing, which wow. uh, you can't, most of it is gone. Bits of it are left. Even some of the fresco is still left on it, but it's, it's a huge, it's hundreds and hundreds of meters long. 
Wow. And it goes, and if, you, if ever, anyone's seen Ben-Hur, the original movie, Charlton Heston, you could see this was like a really cool thing. The Romans were really into their sporting events. Their biggest sporting events were either held in amphitheaters, which was blood sport, or, or hippodromes. And this could seat 12,000 people. Wow. And, uh, and if you watch in Ben-Hur, they have this great scene with the, with the chariot race. And, they, and you went around the, the corner. You could see the corner of the hippodrome is still, still intact. And had a very steep turn. With the idea, these are the best seats. Like today, you go to football games, you want right. to be at the 15-yard line or behind. Yeah, yeah. You go to a baseball right. game, you want to be behind home plate. Right. The best right. place to sit in these theaters was at the corner because that's where all the crashes took place. Wow. Because these horses were going really fast around the front and crash. <laughs> and they painted them like red because they thought the, the color red scared the horses. So make it even more intense. So all the upper class, the best viewing seats. And you can see the spot where the nobility, like Harry would sit up there and he had the best, he had like this box seats like you have today. Right. Nothing changes. All, of, all the sporting things we have today are based on this Greek Roman stuff. <laughs> right. And Herod had a problem though, because sporting events, which the Greeks invented, um, the Olympics, which were, you know, interestingly enough, done only in the nude and only watched by men. Um, mm. But the, when Herod wanted to lure, the Romans took up these sporting events too. They were a huge, huge way of keeping people entertained, keeping people pacified, bread and circus, give people Correct. carbs right. to fill them up and, you know, like give people flat screen TVs and beer and they don't riot. You know, That's where would right. the world be today without like, without like Netflix, televised Netflix. sports and alcohol and, and like pizza and wings, right. you know, a lot more violence. So this is exactly the Romans did the same thing. Uh, the problem is Herod had to lure, you know, he wanted to lure top athletes in, you know, you have the. You know, you got great you be, tennis tournaments, certain tournaments draw the best guys. So Herod, it, it, Josephus mentions that Herod invented a second and third place for oh, uh, probably a, a invention because Greeks only had first place. There's only one champion. Right. But right. if it's second and third place, that means there's more trophies and more honor to be spread around. So more people will come and compete. So his way right. of luring people in, into the city. So when he finishes building this city around the year 10 BCE, he has made a uh, an incredible piece of architecture, an amazing piece of engineering, a huge commercial center for the land of Israel. And the Romans will use this city, Jerusalem, and it was Jewish territory. They'll maintain a Roman garrison in Jerusalem. Herod builds a, a uh, fortress in the, in the northwest corner of the Temple Mount called, called the Antonia that allowed him and the Romans to control the Temple Mount, which was vital to controlling the Jewish people. But Caesarea was a Roman controlled city. Hmm. Um, and, and even after Herod dies, it'll, become, it'll be the central Roman administrative center of the land of Israel. There'll be a mixed population. Jews will be living there also, of course, because there's probably a lot of business opportunities. There's rabbis living in there. There's Jewish community there. But um, this is going to be in, in, in the Roman center of the land of Israel. And it's interesting that it's, it's viewed by the Talmud and the rabbis as the source of like the the, the Roman footprint in the land of Israel, hmm. like the most and, spiritual. Yeah, once the footprints. once the Romans are gone, why does it keep that name? Like, why? How come that's not changed at some point? Well, the, I mean, the, I don't. The the name. Well, the, first of all, the, the Byzantines will inherit. It's going to be a city for like like five hundred plus years, six hundred years. It's going to be mm -hmm. various controlled by Romans and then Roman Christian Empire, um, and then it goes in and out of use and has probably. I'm not sure. I have to look into whether we had different names later in history, but most of it, it's not going to, it's going to be much less significant later in history. But mm -hmm. when it's a Greek Roman, when it's a Roman and Byzantine city, it's going to be called Caesarea. Um, when, you know, the, it's even interesting, the Talmud talks about in, in uh, that 
in Megillah, I believe, Tractate Megillah, talks about Caesarea and Jerusalem. It says if, if someone tells you that Jerusalem is standing and Caesarea has fallen, you can believe them. If they tell you that Caesarea is standing and Jerusalem has fallen, you can believe them. If they tell you that both are standing or both are fallen, don't believe them. Huh. Because and I, and it's not it's not meant to be historically accurate because we know that you know Herod built both both cities were standing at the same time right but right. because that rivalry between Rome which is the descendants of Edom which is Esau and the Jewish people which is Jacob and Esau historically going all the way back to the book of Genesis is viewed as mm. the greatest rivalry so the Roman footprint. And in, in the land of Israel is considered to be Caesarea. And since this rivalry is going to be up and down throughout history, it's viewed as one can one is always up at, at, at the expense of the other. And, and so it's going to be it's going to be viewed as a place, although it has a Jewish population, it's going to be the Roman capital. Hmm. And it's the place also, um, Ellie, where the great revolt of that leads to destruction of the Second Temple is going to break out in Caesarea, according to Josephus. Oh, I didn't know that. That's so interesting. So yeah, it yeah. came from that symbolic heart of rome and israel ironically that's where it starts you know the whole backdrop to the to the great revolt is the internal fractiousness of the jewish people in the land of israel lots of mm -hmm. different groups with the rabbis trying to keep things together and, and and then you had the constant tension that begins much earlier in the greek period that continues until then between the pagans and the jews and the pagan presence in the land of israel before it used to be Greek, now it's Greek Roman citizens scattered throughout the land, but highly concentrated in places like Caesarea. That on top of which, when you're gonna have uh, Roman procurators and prefects who are the Roman rulers, when there's no kings in the second temple period, except for you know Herod the Great, his grandson Ag Agrippus the First, and there's very little, it's mostly direct Roman ru leadership. Rulers and these, and these prefects are terrible people. Um, Pontius Pilate, by the way, who's one of the Roman prefects, who's associated with the Jesus narrative, we find an inscription of his name in Caesarea. Hmm. He's one of the only people in the New Testament. There's no direct evidence for Jesus existing archaeologically, but there is an inscription with his name on there that was found in the city of Caesarea. But these prefects, Josephus, the great first century historian, describes him as being pretty brutal and pretty corrupt. Right. And generally siding with the pagan non-Jewish population against the Jews in various disputes. So, wow. throw that into the pot. You know that the, the you know the the governing force is always going to take the side against the majority of the population who are viewed as almost second-class citizens. It's going to be uh, the, the 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 match that lights the straw that, that, right. that ignites the sixty-six piece sixty-six of the common era. This is way after Herod's gone. Um, is going to be. Uh, an anti-Jewish pogrom in the city of Caesarea, where the pagans like taunt the Jews by like sacrificing an animal outside their synagogue or something. And that leads to a, an argument. And then Florus, the Roman you know, procurator calls in Roman troops, they start killing Jews there. And from there it spreads to Jerusalem and, and riots break out there. And, uh, and that leads to the eventually fast forward to the year 70 and Jerusalem is besieged and destroyed by the Romans. Wow. Which point Caesarea is going to become like the only the, the main city of the land of Israel, with Jerusalem sitting in ruins now. And so then, does it transform at any point after that, up until modern modern times, or does it mainly just sort of exist as a place where people live, but it doesn't necessarily? No, it's going to be it's going to it's going to be a major it's going to be the major when the Romans first of all landing there when they go to reconquer Titus and Vespasian during that great revolt the, the most of the Roman troops that are sent from across the Mediterranean 
the ones who are local will come march through the land from Syria in, uh, but the ones that will land in Caesarea. So it'll be the major right. launching point for the reconquest of the, of the land of Israel starting in the north. Well, once the country is reconquered, it's going to be the major, it's going to be the major city, major mm. port and major area center of Roman administrative control of Judea. If you fast forward, remember the Jews are going to rebel three times right. from the year 66 until the year 135, there's going to be three revolts three major Jewish revolts against the Romans. Two of them will be based in Israel. One's going to be called Kitos' war against Quietus from 115 to 117. We're not even sure how much Israel was involved in that, but it was Jewish communities in the diaspora were revolting. But the final great revolt is going to be the Bar Kokhba revolt from 132 to 135, right. which is going to be the biggest revolt the Romans ever have to crush. And that's in Caesarea? It's not going to be. Caesarea is under, firmly under Roman control. But um, that's going to be the center where the Romans, that's going to be the Roman administrative and military center for control of the land of Israel is going to be based in Caesarea. When that revolt is crushed, which leads to the decimation of much of the land of Israel, Jerusalem is already sitting in ruins by that point anyway, but much of the rest of the country is decimated by the Romans. Um, the, the, there's a famous story in Jewish tradition that's associated with the site, which is the, the 10 martyrs, which I'm sure you're familiar with. We read on Yom Kippur. Um, of these 10 famous rabbis who were martyred right. by the, in the Roman occupation of Israel. And, and, and there's many versions of the story. And if you read it, it seems like they're all killed. Like they all live at the same time and they're all killed on the same day. It's not true. They lived at different periods of time. Some were killed earlier in Jewish history. Some were killed later. But the final acts of martyrdom that are mentioned is the most famous is the martyrdom of Rabbi Akiva. And, and he was almost certainly killed in the Hippodrome. In, wow. uh, in Caesarea, where the Romans, when they crushed that revolt, they brutally crushed the revolt. And then one of the, the spiritual leader of the revolt was Rabbi Akiva, who backed Shimon Bar Koziva, who was the military political leader of the revolt. Wow. And, and we know the story. He's brought to the, he's brought to the uh, probably the Hippodrome and, and skinned alive from his feet to his. Uh, I didn't realize that's where that happened. That's fascinating that it was actually in. The hippodrome like that's I, you don't imagine it when you hear that story you think okay yeah. it's in the streets of so and so and so and so but wow that's such a public i mean it's horrific on all levels anyway so that, so that story so associated with there but just to fast wow. forward quickly through the rest of the plot so rome becomes christian in the fourth century and the and it's it's going to be the largest says there is going to be the largest fortified city in the land of israel um, but we know that in, this, in, the, in the seventh century, the Muslims come and conquer the entire land of Israel, including uh, Caesarea. So the, the Muslims, it's not going to be that significant uh, as Muslims are not so interested in fortified cities on the coast of Israel. Mm. But in, if we fast forward to uh, 1099, the Crusaders show up. And the Crusaders, when they show up, will conquer the land of Israel. They take Jerusalem in 1099, and two years later, in 1101, they're going to conquer the city from uh, from basically. There's going to be Jews and and, um, and 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 Arabs in the city defending the city against the Crusaders wow. who take the city. Like we know that the the Crusaders slaughtered slaughter pretty much the Muslims and Jewish populations of all the city. They do that in Jerusalem. They kill like seventy thousand Muslims. The city they burn the five to seven thousand Jews alive and who had fled to the synagogue, which may have been underneath the Temple Mount. The same thing happens when they take uh, when they take Caesarea. They slaughter the the population, and they will 
build it into a very seriously fortified. They create the Latin kingdom of the Crusaders, which is based on fortified cities along the coast of Israel, places like Ashkelon and Akko, Caesarea, Jerusalem. They build all these fortified cities. But if we fast forward to um, 1187, Salah ad-Din al-Ayubi, who's a Kurd who ruled out of Egypt, he will reconquer the land of Israel. In 1187, he takes all these crusader cities, he takes uh, you know, Tiberias, he takes Jerusalem, all these cities fall, either fallen, most of them are surrendered by the crusaders who realize they cannot hold out against the vastly superior armies. But, but the crusaders don't give up trying to reconquer the land of Israel. They come back again in the early 13th century. There's a number of additional crusades to conquer the land of Israel. None of them are successful, like Richard the Lionhearted comes back. Hmm. Um, none of them are successful in reconquering Jerusalem, but they are successful in taking cities back along the coast of Israel, wow. like Ashkelon is, re, is reconquered, um, and, and Caesarea and Acre are reconquered by the Crusaders, who go then and fortify them massively. Uh, you've King Louis IX, who's known as, who's known as St. Louis, you know, anyone who's deified by the Catholic Church, generally medieval period, was a vicious anti-Semite. Right. He's the guy who burns cartloads of the Talmud in Paris in the, in the 13th century. They, they put the Talmud on trial. So St. Louis wasn't such a saint from Jewish perspective. But he, he, he will be, he'll spend several years in the land of Israel, and he will spend a lot of money fortifying uh, cities like Caesarea. And today, when you go to Caesarea, you can see the port is basically all silted over and gone. That jetty that was built by Herod is completely gone. Wow. If you don't, the problem with ports, once you wash away the, the breakwater, they silt up. The sand right. builds up on the port and it it's, it's pretty much gone. And, and what used to be where the ships came in is now solid land today. You can see the place where the, where the uh, temple for Augustus was built. Mm-hmm. You can see some later construction there. A lot of the features like the amphitheater and the, and the, theater, are, the theater are still standing. Um, but what still remains is the crusader walls of the city wow. are still largely intact, even though Baybars, the Mameluke ruler in the mid 13th century, the Mamelukes will complete the complete reconquest of the land of Israel and destroy every single uh, possible area that crusaders every city acre all these places are leveled by the mamelukes because they're the ones who want to make sure crusaders don't come back again so by the 13th century there's no more christian presence in the land of israel till the british are going to show up in 1917 but if you go visit caesarea today you can still see the moat which was and the and the remains of the walls of the crusader fortification Hmm. of the city itself so there's a lot of different what's the mameluke relationship with the jewish population at that point the mamelukes as far as i know didn't they underneath the mamelukes i think i'm pretty sure they did not there was no major mameluke persecution of jews their made their big enemy was was and, and places and these cities that was a crusader city jews weren't even in these cities right crusaders uh, were not nice to jews at all generally right. speaking i mean jerusalem probably jews jews were living in the city but generally speaking these are the people who slaughtered the jews wow. so uh but their big their big enemy was was not Jew, they had nothing against this very small jewish population they they're, they were focused primarily on getting the Christian population, these crusaders once and for all out of the land of Israel and making sure they never come back again. But after that period of time, even though there's going to be like some resettlement of the city, it's interesting that there's going to be like a Bosnian community of Cherkessians is going to settle in there. Wow. Really weird. You can still see like the mosque they set up there. They were brought in by the Turks from the Caucasus as like as mercenaries. 
So, but it's basically going to be a sleepy little nothing place. Once the, once the, once the port, there was nothing there to begin with and only Herod's making it into a port made it economically viable. And once the crusaders are gotten rid of and the port silts over and the, and the Muslims aren't interested in having it settled in a significant way, it's going to kind of like sink into obscurity. And in 1837, there's a huge earthquake in the land of Israel centered in the Galilee, which is going to destroy Sfat and level what's left of 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 uh of caesarea it's gonna wow. be ruined and it's gonna basically sit in ruins until um baron rothschild edmund de rothschild who bought it did a but did a lot of land purchases in the land of israel and established some of the early settlements like zichron yaakov where alan i believe lives who's watching um he he purchases a lot of this land from the turks it's sitting as basically abandoned land and uh, there's no real Jewish settlement then, but they do build in 1940, just just nearby, the kibbutz is built, which is called Stotyam, on the coast of Israel, which is where Hannah Senech, the famous paratrooper, poet, Tess, right. uh, early Zionist settler is from, wow. is from there. So, but so when, when they, the Rothschilds purchased it, could they have changed the name if they wanted to, or they just opted to keep the Roman name? They, they just opted to keep it like certain I, I, probably because it had a pre-existing name you, the, the places that had what you don't find being done in israel is people renaming old cities with new names hmm. the arabs preserve some of the old ancient jewish names albeit modified and arabicized like you know uh, you know gush Khalab becomes the arab village of gish and things like that hmm. and el jib you know you know givon becomes el jib but with the, the modern Israeli names are placed on places that had no Jewish settlement before mm -hmm. them. Places like Renana you know, and, and, and Petach Tikva and Herzliya are were sand dunes. So there's nothing there. So the general idea is to preserve the biblical or ancient names of the places. So they would just build, an, you can build, you know, Stotyam to, next to Caesarea, but you keep the, preserve the name of the place. Wow. But today, if you look to Caesarea, what it's become, the ancient Caesarea has never been rebuilt on. It's, a, it's just a giant archaeological site. It's a huge, huge site. Hmm. It sits right on the, the Mediterranean. It's a can, very, you, can you uh, dig there? Can you actually go and dig you, there? There's no digging going on there now that I'm aware of it. The, most of the archaeology there recently is underwater archaeology because a lot of it is wow. now underwater because of the silting of the port and, and, the, and the erosion of the coastline. So they found all kinds of ships and things that have been scuttled there and they go underwater and they find things down there, but there's no, there's restoration work going on there absolutely and still today. I don't know if there's any actual digging of the site. The site has largely been completely excavated. Wow. What has been done in modern times in the archeological site, I'm not talking about the, the golf course and the nice area of the community was built on a sand dune also, is not built on any antiquities, but what has been done uh, in, in, in modern times, they put a lot into making it much more interactive as an archaeological historical site. Mm -hmm. There's a really cool visitor center, a very nice movie they've made. You can walk through this room and they have these laser hologram people standing there. You can talk to different people involved in, in the history of Caesarea. The movie is really, really well done, taking its great computer graphics, the different battles and the construction mm -hmm. and what happens to the port. Um, so it's sort of like frozen in time and never been built over, unlike a lot of places in Israel, like the old city of Jerusalem, because we just wanted to inhabit it. We just built around it and left it as is. And there's all right. kinds of cool Jewish settlement up and down the coast. But then the, the, the main ports in Israel will move on and become the north of, you know, we get to, we didn't get to Haifa at all, but Haifa and especially Acre will become the really big port cities of Israel after that until modern times. And even till today, Haifa is, is one of the big 
you know, really main industrial centers and, and, and biggest port, one of, along with Ashdod in Israel. So uh, Haifa is an uh, interesting city. So I think maybe what we'll do is we'll let's take a look next week. We can um, look at either, either Haifa or Akko, but Haifa is so fascinating just in terms of the population even there now. Um, yeah, I think it would be super interesting. So the high capital. Yeah, it's fascinating. So fascinating. So next week, let's pick it up again, and we'll do Haifa, yeah, we do Haifa. and we'll look at Akko. Um, please, everyone that's listening, if you have questions, if you have topics you'd like us to cover, please get in touch with us. Please don't forget to like and subscribe to the podcast. Um, and we are in the midst of setting up an Instagram account, so that will hopefully have some interesting photographs and some additional materials to the things that we talk about. Um, and Ken, you recently discovered that you actually are on Instagram. So <laughs> if you want to find Ken Spiro on Instagram and follow him My there, you can also do that. Right? So yes, correct. He's digging on social media and look what he found. Um, so you have to get me can... to post, you have to get me to post more stuff on there. You know? Correct. We're working on it. Um, so thank you everyone for joining. Um, thanks for joining us on remember what's next. If you would like to get more resources and information about Rabbi Ken Spiro, please check out his website at www.kenspiro.com. If you have a question or an idea for a topic, please email us at rememberwhatsnext at gmail.com.